Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs, and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP Practitioner Course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning. We are back uh, another week, another day. Are you kidding me right now? Like This is the time in the world where entrepreneurs are needed the most. The government's jumping in and helping entrepreneurs, small businesses, minority owners. Like There is so much opportunity right now to get out and really create and grow something. And that's why the, the caliber of guests that I've been bringing each and every week, especially in the last few months, have been top-notch just like today. Today, I have with us uh, David S. Kidder. Now, he's not only an experienced entrepreneur, he's also an angel investor in over 40 companies, including early angel investments in you know, little brands like SpaceX, Airbnb. You may have heard of some of these. He's also the, the uh, co-founder and CEO of a company called Bionic. They install proprietary solutions designed uh, to unlock new growth and competitiveness for the world's largest enterprises, all based on models, methods, talent, tools, venture capital, entrepreneurship. This is, uh, we were talking just offline, and I'm excited to get David's take on this, but really building the entrepreneur uh, phase of a business from that zero to 100 million, uh, David believes there's a specific, correct way, there's a, a tool set, there's a talent side, there's a skill set to doing this. So without any further ado, David, are you with us, my friend? Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Hey, I'm. I, you're welcome for having and I'm happy that you're happy about that. <laughs> it's going to be great. And uh, I don't often uh, meet someone in the angel investing space. I, I don't go into the venture capital world very often. Um, is this something that you have always been like really interested in, like going back into the, your early years, or is this something you kind of fell into? I know there's a lot of fall into it, quote unquote stories. How did you get into your very first angel investment? You know, it just, it's a, it's a kind of a jet stream. It's a, it's a, there's an absolute network effect of like both volume and deal access you can get as you build your relationships in the world. And so as you move through uh, and up, so to speak in the world, you get, uh, you get to see things. And so, if you can, uh, you know, in the early days now, I guess 15 years ago, when I didn't have a lot of liquidity and little kids, I, uh, I was able to kind of scrap together what I could and, and start investing. And I've done about now over 40, 45 angel investments uh, over the last 15 years in two personal funds with my co-founder of this company and a, a, a co-founder of my last one. And uh, LP and a, and a couple uh, venture funds like Founders Fund and Torch Capital and Kitty Hawk and others. So I just, it's just about be staying active and curious and uh, showing up the best you can, uh, whether it be a network or, or a small check. And if you get to 30 or 40 of these, you know, typically 7% of all the capital deployed 
leads to unbounded returns and the rest go to zero. So if you get, get to the volume, uh, usually returns are, can be really extraordinary. You mentioned too, just now that um, there's different, of course, angel investor funds and groups and everything. Is is a lot of the the early investing stages, like I'm imagining when you're talking SpaceX, it's like, did you say, hey, Elon has this idea to go to space, maybe I'll put money towards that? Or is this the kind of deal where you're putting some excess funds of yours into a group account and and they're saying, hey, as a group, we, you know, we, we vetted this company, we vetted that company. Can you speak a little bit just kind of to the ins and outs of, of how that works? Yeah, I mean, that that is through, you know, typically your access to those type of deals are, um, you know, second order effects. Like that would be either through a LP relationship in a, in a fund or as is the case with SpaceX, or you would have it with, you know, uh, an individual who knows the founder and they're early raising capital. So um, also just through VCs, you know, if you have friends who are venture capitalists and they know your value and you think you can contribute something to the company, um, you know, the specific, I, you know, asking the, you know, you know, asking the universe in your network saying, Hey, listen, I'm really good at, you know, for me, at least, you know, enterprise commercialization, I'm happy to help. But if I can be helpful to a portfolio company where I can create unfair advantage, um, and I can invest, um, uh, then I'd love to be helpful. You can't sort of do it too many times, but when you can, and you can back up a little capital, even if it's tiny, um, you'd be surprised what you can get yourself into. And, and I've uh, been very fortunate in that regard. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Um, I, before we get kind of too deep into, the, into this rabbit hole, I wanted to just backtrack into some of your early days. One of the questions I ask uh, most entrepreneurs, I'm fascinated by it, is how did you grow up? Were you that kind of, you know, selling, uh, buying the Costco candy and selling bars at school? Were you that little kid entrepreneur at Lemonade Stand? Or is this something that kind of, you know, again, you fell into, maybe you're going down a certain career path. Um, what was it like growing up? And what was your mindset like towards that entrepreneurial mindset? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up a family with lots of love, uh, not a lot of means, uh, but uh, definitely encouragement and uh, wonderful parents, uh, one of four kids. Um, went to college, but uh, it studied at uh, industrial design at uh, RIT. But, you know, in, when I was, you know, 11, 12, it started with a tennis racket that I couldn't afford uh, on layaway at Montgomery Ward. And that led to, you know, my first paper route, you know, and it was, you know, it like affects snow in the winter. You do you drop 26 papers off and collect money once a month and you save. And so that was just part of the journey was, you know, it's, it, 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 you're only going to get, uh, you're only going to receive if you, if you put the work in. And so that just sort of laddered up to, sorry, sorry. You, you said lake effect. Where'd you grow up? Uh, just outside of Albany and then in Rochester. So you get all the, you know, from, you just get all you dumped on. So uh, you get, you get all the, the, uh, the sort of like uh, catastrophic snow uh, surges. So riding a BMX bike in the winter, dropping papers off is always a fascinating uh, experience, but you know, I just, <laughs> I love it. I, uh, you know, in college, I was very fortunate to meet an entrepreneur named Bill Gillette and it was the beginning of the internet, 95, 96. And so I helped, you know, join and build this, uh, contribute to the start of a company uh, with him. And got the bug. And then from there really was birthed my first small startup and then just been sort of laddering up ever since. That's incredible. So you really went, what were your parents like? Were, uh, you said a lot of love, not a lot of means. Were your mom and dad kind of of the mindset of, you know, go to college, get a job, get a good career? Or were they, hey, Dave, you can do whatever you want, buddy. What, what was that um, aspect like? My dad was like a like an apostle like monk. He's very you know psychologist, educated psychologist, very kind, um, very open to whatever journey I was on. Not a lot of pressure, 
they cared a lot more about character than they did grades. Uh, and then, you know, classic birth orders, you know, like my three sons, I have a, a, a you know, a classic firstborn type A. It was my sister. That's my oldest son. The middle was the comedian, my sister to my middle son. And then there's always the, the entrepreneur, the third one, which I was uh, biologically speaking, which is very true my own, of my three sons. And, um, you know, so I was classic birth order and my mom was a writer. My dad was uh, a nurturer and, uh, and we, they just sort of helped find that way and was very enthusiastic to the things I was enthusiastic with um, and uh, just worked on, you know, growing who I was becoming as opposed to who I was to the world, so to speak. Are you, are you glad that that happened? It sounds like something that is not, it's not as prevalent as we wish it was. Maybe today, right? A lot of us parents, we look at our young kids and think, hey, you know, what do you love? What are you interested in? How are you built, right? Um, and I love that you said, focus on building your kid's character, right? Not necessarily the skill sets, although that's important. Do you, like, are, are you really glad and fortunate that that happened? Do you think you would have turned, and here's the real question. Do you think you would have turned out differently Say, had you had an engineer for a dad who said, you should be an engineer, son, do you think you would still find yourself in that entrepreneurial journey? Or do you think you might have, I don't know, ended up, you know, working in a cubicle? Yeah, it's funny because I probably, I was actually quite nervous about like my economic future. Um, and so I was probably more conservative in my mindset growing up about like what I wanted to do to secure that. But in reality, I was just genetically predisposed to taking risk. And so I think my my parents really taught me a lot about being both my person in the world, but also a spiritual being. And so I, you know, despite, you know, everyone has life experiences that shape them for better or for worse, you, you, you learn to sort of like cover yourself. And so you become a performance junkie. I think that growing up back then, those are really things that happened to you and then how you adapted to them, how you sort of like solve yourself as a result of those experiences. The difference today is that, is that we are that, that, that event, sort of, sort of speak in our kid's life. Like we create the pressure for performance, you know, out of fear very often, but also because you want your the most for your kids and too much has been given, much has been deserved. I think my, my philosophy and that sort of comes from my parents, but also comes from my own you know, pretty, pretty radical deep work over the years has really been around asking, like, why are you making this decision? And being in the conversation of where underneath, you know, your decision making is this coming from? And predominantly around the idea of love versus fear. Um, are you making decisions through a lens of fear or one of abundance and love? And if you can think of yourself as sort of our, our, our I talk about my sons with this, you know, there's them in their, their consciousness, in their meat suits, walking through the world today, getting their butts kicked, right? We all do that. And so, you know, if you're trying to feel better when it, you have those experiences, you perform, right? You're trying to, it's kind of like money, sex, power, kind of treats the, treats the, treats the harm. But if you could think of yourself as sort of like a, a spiritual being in, in the dimension of you have your, your sort of soul with you that's over you and that you're this spiritual person with this physical conscious person, what your soul is saying to you is, I love you. I love you, Matt. And I only want the things that are for you in the world that are through the lens of love. And it's kind of like, if you have kids, you know, it's not the question of like, how much do you love, you know, your child, Matt? Like, it's like the power of the sun, but you can go through an experience where you can experience that same love from your soul to yourself. It, it takes the power of the, of the things in the world that are covering you to feel better from those old wounds and allows you to really get in touch with the why, why I'm making this decision. So I think to come full circle, 
the way I'm raising my sons in their life, both personally and what I hope they do professionally is to ask like the origin of their decision-making. And if they love themselves and they love the need in the world they want to solve and they love the work, that alignment, I think, will lead them into the right purpose, the right meaning, the right impact, the right people um, in their life. But if they're coming from fear, whether it be something that they are trying to fix themselves or I am projecting on them, I think their life will be candidly probably mortally wounded. Dude, I couldn't agree more. And you know that key that key distinction you're making, man, is decision making. I think when it comes to our kids, there's probably arguably no greater skill to teach them than decision-making. And unfortunately, so many parents are busy focused on outcomes, right? How do I make sure my kid has an A? How do I make sure the trash is taken out? How do I make sure their room's clean? Versus how do I help them to decide that cleaning their room is one of the best things to do? Or can they still get outcomes they want with a dirty room, even though that's not how I would do it? But teaching the kids decision-making and to your point, decisions out of love, not fear, decisions out of, of purpose, right? Uh, not procedure, really, really good stuff. Hey, this is random, but I was just uh, scrolling on your Instagram as we were going and I saw you got one of Elon's flamethrowers. Dude, how good is that? You guys got to check this out. It's at uh, David S. Kidder. It's K-I-D-D-E-R. If, uh, if you're listening to this just live, uh, pull over in your car when you get a sec, go on Instagram to David S. Kidder. Uh, scroll down and you'll see one of the boring company. Cause I remember Elon talking about putting those flamethrowers out. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call them a flamethrower, but we call them flamethrowers. How do you like that? And how sweet is that thing? <laughs> I have two of them. One in my office and one at home. <laughs> they're great. Um, Why yeah, they're hilarious. If I, I think it's my, my youngest son, Lucas, who's holy and probably ca catching the house on fire. It's funny. Cause one of our, one of my, one of my kind of guys, in the team, it's been, been with us since the beginning, Hanny Hindi. Uh, used one last year in the, in the office to souffle a bunch of like a holiday dessert. So they, they, they're, they're hilarious. They're dangerous, of course, but they're not quite what a real flamethrower. It's still butane. It's not like, you know, a, a super high heat gas, but it's uh, they're really fun and they're uh, fun to use and, and uh, light fires with it at the very least. Yeah. I, I just love, I mean, this is, again, this is the kind of idea, you know, talking uh, to an Elon about the idea for that. I just love that mindset, that entrepreneur of taking the invisible, making it visible and, and answering the question, what if? And I know that's a lot of how, how uh, On Bionic came out. What was your what if moment be, when you were first looking at planting or starting this as a startup? And I know you bootstrapped the company um, up to the 25 million mark plus, which is pretty darn remarkable. Um, what was that, that? Did you have a what if moment like before you had started on Bionic of, hey, what if we could solve this problem, help these people? And then all of a sudden it turned in from a cocktail napkin where you wrote down some ideas to a full fledged company. Talk to us about kind of the very genesis of the idea. Yeah, you know, it actually came through a single question. It was, uh, I was at, uh, speaking at a conference after my first business book came out called The Startup Playbook with the chairman uh, of GE at the time. And I was on stage and, and Beth Comstock asked me, she said, you know, what do you think of, you know, the company as an outsider? And I remember telling the CEO at the time, Jeff Immelt, I asked him, you know, how many $50 million companies did you launch last year? And uh, I said, I bet the answer is zero. And uh, it was kind of a shocking question uh, to, uh, to ask him. Um, but it was very provocative in the sense that like what I realized um, in that moment was, is that large companies don't regularly and repeatedly create growth. And to his credit, Jeff is a wonderful guy, despite, you know, some of the challenges that uh, really profound challenges GE's had, that he came backstage and he said, you know, you're going to come fix this. And then he went back on stage and he said, that's the most important question in 37 years to all 800 of their 
top executives. And what he did is he hired um, Eric Reese of Lean Startup fame, which had been work- Eric had been working there for about six months prior to that, and then me to focus on growth mindset. And we traveled the world. And what we realized is that, you know, they kept thinking it was an employee problem. And when you go talk to the employees, the employees are like, uh, we don't have an employee problem. It's the mindset of the leaders. And reality is, is that, you know, Beth's work was really to bring the future to the doorstep of the company, the company, you know, in this case, it was, you know, you know, disruptive technologies like, you know, renewables and data and other things. But the reality is, is the question is, does it get to the inside of the company? Does it transfer in? And so, the model that we created was it has existed. So in the same way, for good reason, an MBA administrates the big to bigger, that kind of incrementalism in existing marketplaces, the total addressable marketplace view of the world. Growth lives in a mindset around total addressable needs or problems. It's a portfolio from the outside in, from the inside out to the outside in. And there's there's actually forms of management. It's called venture capital and entrepreneurship, but they're the opposite of planning. They're about discovery. And when you go back and you look at, you know, why it works is about 70% of all the money you make in unbound, um, in growth lead is, comes from about 7% of capital deployed. So if I you know, make 100 bets or $100 million investment, 7% of that total capital or volume will lead to all the, all the economic uh, growth. And so when I go back to the beginning and I say, well, why did I make those investments? They have two signals. One is high conviction, asking the question, why us and why now? What is our proprietary gift with outside force? And the second one is non-consensus, meaning we make all of our money from the ideas with the highest disagreement rate. And the reason why is because it's new to you. It's new to the world. It's uncomfortable. And so we're really in learning mode as opposed to planning mode. And once you get this right in our model at Bionic, you can transform a whole organization. And we've done that now with the CEOs of P&G, General Mills, Citigroup, and others to great effect. Yeah, I saw you were just, uh, again, back on your Instagram, you were keynoting in Istanbul, uh, speaking to the Microsoft teams. And so like you've done this and implemented this, these strategies or this mindset, uh, wh- whatever you would call that, uh, across the board with what I love is different industries, different size companies, some of the largest businesses out there, Fortune 500 companies. Could you unpack the the non-consensus a little bit more? That was a really fascinating concept. You said something about going with the decisions that have the most disagreement. Could you unpack that and, and clarify a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the large organization is highly incentivized and paid to know. It's supposed to be predictable, right? It's like um, it's really incentive to make sure you, you know, you you beat the quarter. Of course, it's sort of like the whole shareholder capitalism challenges that we have today um, is that we don't have uh, the accountability for the, for winning the future on 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 the table always. It's an it's while growth is important, it's coming from where the business is winning today, not where it's where it's going going to be going from. And so the challenge with that is if you think about disruption, you know, it's, um, it's I actually spent years evangelizing that disruption was real until the pandemic. And so I never have to like sell that dream again. It's real. Disruption really is about when the needs change, when a customer need change, their behavior change, the model changes. Um, very often they can't even tell you where they're going. They can't tell you what they need because they don't know it's happening to them. They discover it in the need. I need something delivered or, droned or, you know, digital versus analog, it happens because it's available and that's where the behavior goes. So in a way, the only way to get to that future is to do it through experimentation and testing, which is why lean matters. It's why framing from making, you know, five big bets a year that are known because past precedence is the greatest predictor of future outcome 
to discovery where the portfolio of uh, teaches you where the where the growth is coming it very often you know it really often comes from what doesn't work the failure um, and so you need tests to show you where the behavior is going because behaviors don't lie and we call that the do versus say it's what customers do not what they say because they don't know and secondly is is because your your setup portfolio is around the permission to solve the total problem or the total need. Whether you have it or not, your product, your technology has it, your job is to solve that customer need as it's changed the world. And um, and there's a whole you know set of lenses that even help you think about what to invest in in non-consensus we can get into as you get into the deeper issues of investing in this way. And so you need teams that can do it. You need model and leaders who can invest in it. People can hold you know, high friction, you know, learning moments together without having to be right. Um, so you can actually discover that future that's happening to you from the outside in. Very, very cool. Can you, one of the things we talked about just before we went to tape uh, or went live, record, hit the button with the red circle thing uh, was the difference, the fundamental difference with different size enterprises. And the one I'm most, and you, you mentioned kind of quickly off the cuff, yeah, you know, this, it's a different strategy for zero to a hundred million. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of us listening are not at the over the hundred million mark. Can we talk about the seven figure mark? What, what are some of the fundamental, whether it's mindsets or decision processes or anything that comes to your mind strategy wise that are unique to the kind of zero to hundred thousand or zero to the first million in revenue that will definitely have some changes once you get beyond that, that space. What's some advice you have for those early onset startups? So I wrote this book about nine years ago called The Startup Playbook to answer this exact question. I had raised like $35 million from my, my software company and we had a little under 200 people. And we were kind of, we realized in that journey, we had built not one company, but two companies at once, which is a super bad thing, by the way. You could be successful, but if you you actually built a, you know, a beautiful Siamese twin kid, you know, like you could be a parent who loves that kid. The rest of the world does not like that kid. It's a, it's a weird kid, not a wonderful kid. Um, and so, you, you know, in this case, we had to kind of, this sounds like totally sick, but we had to kind of take the tear in half, so to speak. You had to surgically, surgically separate. Can we say exactly. that? Exactly. It was a much more eloquent way to say <laughs> you that. You had to rip it in two pieces. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to borrow that. I'm going to, I'm going to cite you, Matt, for that one. But uh, I've been looking separate at the words. with love. <laughs> Lovingly separate. My board did not feel that way. But anyways, <laughs> um, we had raised a lot. Uh, but in any case, the point was, I was like, I kind of had this question, which was like, how did I screw this up? Right? How did I miss this? And so I, uh, I, I hit the road. And so I'd already been traveling a lot. And so every time I was in a different city, I had friends or friends of friends. And I just started interviewing some of the best entrepreneurs in the world. And I asked them really two questions. One was, how do you bet your life? Like, how do you know it's true that you're building a huge company? Number two is, what do you do in the first five years not to die? And that became this playbook, this startup playbook. And it had like, you know, it's, the foreword was written by Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn fame, is a friend, you know, Elon Musk, Sarah Blakely, Robin Chase, some just amazing uh, entrepreneurs. And they all effectively said the same thing, which is when you're betting your life in the beginning, something typically has the same five signals in the same order in the first three years. And I'll just, I'll give you the executive summary. The first one is lens, and this is what you're looking for. So your, to your seven figure question, how do you know that's going to work? So you want to first look through a lens of proprietary gift. Why you? What is your unfair advantage? Like what's the thing you've discovered in the world, this secret that given enough time, you know, the Gladwellian 10 years and 10,000 hours, 
you'll be the one of one in the world to solve it. That's proprietary gift. Something you know that no one else knows about a need that you can uniquely solve. So that's proprietary gift. The thing is, you know, you can't cross your fingers. Fingers. Pathological optimism, wishful thinking is the enemy that Elon said is super dangerous in that moment because someone will come along who's truly gifted and will win the whole space. So finding your proprietary gift in the need in the world is, is the number one thing. And it largely re-indexes around that one idea. Two is you have to have extreme focus. The more things you do, the weaker your company is, the more mediocre you are just in general. So finding the place where you have focus on that problem and your solution and having you know, gotten out of the dark alleys and found the light is very critical. That takes time, but you can't do too many things. Optionality is the enemy. The third lens is you got to know painkillers and not vitamins. How do you, where's the chronic lifelong malignant need or problem that you're solving that's not going away? And the last two lenses are really about execution. So most, most companies kind of fall to the sky and die because the entrepreneur is super optimistic and to the point where they're bending reality, it's mostly theirs and not customers around proprietary gift with focus that are painkillers. And the last two, once you find the true answers, and these aren't one or zero, they're just good enough signals. And they're true, by the way. They can't be you know, faked. The last two are execution. So the, you want to asymmetrically invest in the factor of 10x. So the 10x is the fourth lens. If I asymmetrically invest in the one thing that becomes impossible to replicate, then I can sustain the growth of the company. Because the fifth lens, which often doesn't happen, but when it does with intention becomes the miracle, which is how do I create permanence in the life of the customer? I get so good with hooks and barbs, they could never go anywhere else. Those five lenses really changed my life and was the entire mindset and the learning that, bore, that, that created Bionic, which is a product-enabled service company today that's scaling. I just want to point out that if you're listening to this live, make sure you go find the Driven Entrepreneur, our show, On Demand. I put it on all on-demand platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Apple, and all that. Go back and listen to this episode. Rewind that part a couple of times. It was very, very good. Unbelievably succinct, David. In just two minutes, you explained probably the five most important, as you said, lenses to look at any startup. Um, last couple of questions as we wind down. I can't believe our time's going and we got to respect that. Um, if you look through your startup with these lenses, and let's say I'm a year or two in and I'm excited and I'm growing and I'm, as you said, pathologically uh, optimistic, which can be an issue. If I see through this lens after picking up the startup playbook, which you can get, uh, you can find out more at onbionic.com, by the way, go check out everything David's doing and then follow David at uh, Instagram and LinkedIn and all those places at David S. Kidder. That's two D's, K-I-D-D-E-R. He's not a kidder, but he's David S. Kidder. If I find that through those five lenses, one of those is foggy. It's like, you know what? I don't really know that I have a unique take or perspective on this and anyone else could come in and do what I'm doing. Or maybe any of the lenses are, are, are foggy. They're not right. What do I do? Do I, do I crumple it up and go home? What suggestions do you have as far as pivoting, adjusting, kind of fixing those lenses if you're missing something? I think the first one, the first one's really hard to fix, the proprietary gift question. I'd agree. It, yeah, because that, that- I was like, how do you become unique when, if you're not unique, right? Well, everybody's unique. You know, I, I don't say that like, you know, you know, to make, you know, cheery talk. I just, I think it's like, I think what matters is what you most deeply care about. And when you find what you most deeply care about, you could ask like what your superpower is, what, what really is, you know, where every 10 hours feels like one hour. And in that, you can really understand your giftedness, how to solve that need. And so 
while that sounds like cartoonishly simple, it's, it is stupidly hard, but that's really at the core of this, which is, is my work hanging off a proprietary gift because I care very deeply about this out, the need in the world and I'm learning how to solve it in my giftedness. I'm not trying to compete with everybody. I'm trying to build a one of one company that has no competitors, right? If it's constant, if it's just features of the world and you're an arms race for, you know, that has a hundred competitors, it's not worth chasing. It's very unlikely you're going to win. So when you find that, that's really an interior question in your life. And I would start there. That's the most important one. The rest, I think, are, are, are largely fixable. Like what you, what you do need around you are truth tellers. People, as Adam Grant, who's at our board, often says, is you need disagreeable givers, right? People who aren't just like, you know, rooting you on and useless, but they're actually, or biased, but they tell the truth. They're very valuable and they're going to roll up their sleeves and help. And that'll help you see around the need, around the focus that that allows them to uh, allows you, quite frankly, to decide where to put your energies uh, and money, so to speak, to uh, to actually you know produce something that passes through those lenses. And so it sounds like almost, and correct me, I might be thinking of it wrong, but it sounds almost like out of the five lenses, you could you could look at the first lens as almost a macro lens of like the first lens. And then if you can make it through that one, then you need to look at the next four and make sure it cuts mustard there too. Would that be fair to say? It would. It just, the, the first one is such a, um, a bias. There's so much cognitive bias around like, you know, about what you're good at and, you know, confirmation bias and loss aversion and sunk costs. So, you know, you really have to, once someone's fully invested in making something true, that wishful thinking is the enemy part that Elon said. I agree. It's really hard to undo that. So you really have to be mentally strong to be able to go and do this well um, so that you can, you know, get to the truth. And I think at the end of the day, this is about truth. And if you are not in it, if you aren't speaking it, if you don't want it, you're really perpetuating a disservice to yourself, but also your investors and your customers, and everyone around you, because um, you, sh- there, you, you should be focused on what's true about you, about the work, about the need in the world. And you'll just have, you'll find so much more success there when you're not trying to use your company to fix yourself. You know, the company is always a direct reflection of the founder. If it's not growing, it's because of you. hundred percent. And so like, these are really critical things there. It's just a mirror. The job of a founder is three things. Vision and roadmap is number one. Get it being right and on time for three years. Two is putting the talent in the seats in the right order. And you can't make, make a mistake through your first 20 employees, not one. By the time you get them fixed in the wrong seat, you're out of money, you're dead. And the third is you never run out of money. Either you raise it or you earn it. And that's all that is, just those three things. And if you build a company to do that, to solve that need, and it's true, you'll be hugely successful. If you don't, that's on you. And that's your personal growth that's stopping the company from becoming successful. Well, that was one last huge, huge value bomb. I just want to point out again. Can you say real quick those three again? The three jobs of a founder are um, simple, but profoundly hard to do well. The first is setting a vision that's true for three years, of which you're largely driving into market timing. Outside forces really drive almost all startup success. But in the year you're in, you have to be pretty much right in the quarters for 12 months out. You can fix what's beyond that. Two is, is talent. So talent is you got to put the right people in the right seats with no mistakes, zero through 20 employees. Take six months to hire someone, six months to get a job, 90 days to fire them and 90 days to find someone new. You're out of money if you make a mistake. You get two or three mistakes, 20 to 50 and five to 10 and to 100. That's all the churn you can afford on talent. Zero mistakes for the first 20 hires. I wanted that to sink in. That is incredible. So 
the the scouting, the hiring, the bringing on team members one by one is so incredibly important. And to your point, having the right people, but also the right people on the right seats on the bus. And the third one? Yep. Never run out of money. And there's only two ways to do that. One is earn it or raise it. And that's a real question for employees because our founders, because they think, well, I'll raise the company to validate my idea. I would highly re-index around looking for validation in customer revenue, always. Um, because I think that people are looking for someone smart to say they're smart. It's a waste of time. If you can actually be in the bottom of a problem with a customer who will pay you, even if it's modest, because there's an exchange of value and there's no pressure in discovering it. It's just the truth. And so the, the faster you can get into revenue for, or exchange of value contractually or not, the better the company will be earlier so you can discover that. Very few companies actually raise venture capital, having raised tons myself. Like, you know, there's 2.6 million companies launched after a year. There's only single digit thousands that raise venture. So don't think that that's your path forward. The path forward- Would you say also, it it might also not be the right strategy? Like even if you had access and you had someone, a VC say yes, would it be fair to say that in a lot of situations, it's not really the best strategy too? If it's masking um, things that are not commercially true, yeah, it's a super bad idea. And more importantly is that there's not that many great VCs out there. So you're just getting money. So So plan A isn't Shark Tank. Plan A is not Shark Tank. (laughs) No. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it, that's all like startup vanity. There's just, it's just so, it's almost a disservice, yeah. honestly. I love it. David, man, thanks so much for, I mean, just everything you poured into us today. I, I uh, And I say us, I mean, me and every listener here, I, I appreciate you guys and I appreciate you. Um, again, we can find your book, The Startup Playbook at ombionic.com and you can find out more about David. Um, what's the best way to like follow you, connect with you, uh, Plug your stuff, man. You've been given so much value this whole time. I'd certainly, we, we want to jump in and, and add value to your life. Yeah. So the, uh, very kind of you, Matt, very kind. Of, um, I'll just say quick 30 seconds. So um, if you're in a startup, you know, startup playbook is gold. It was, not because it's my stuff. It's because it's their stories and their mindsets and how they bet their life. So the best entrepreneurs in the world. If you're sitting in a big company, you know, the, lar- the focus of my work today of the last eight years of my co-founder Anne and the whole team has been on how to refound large organizations. And that you can find more about at onbionic.com or the book, New to Big. We just wrote this, which is really about the story of our growth operating system and how venture capital and entrepreneurship are forms of management. So in the same way, we have an MBA that manages the incremental big to bigger. And we use Six Sigma and lean manufacturing and TQM. You got to have a system to create and manage growth. And that's what we do. And you'll find more about that in the growth OS in New to Big. Dude, that's amazing. So check that out. So you got two great books. The Startup Playbook is for your startup, your entrepreneur, your solopreneur side. And New to Big is for the larger uh, established companies wanting to really reinvent and create the culture, the systems, the ecosystem that Bionic can help you with. Amazing. And then, of course, follow David at David S. Kidder on all social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera. David, you rock, my friend. Uh, I love your flamethrower from Elon. I love the work you're doing with big companies, and I love your mindset. Uh, You are appreciated. Thank you so much for coming on. Very kind. Appreciate it. All right, guys, that's the show for this week, man. Thank you so much again, my guys. David S. Kidder of On Bionic. Wow. What just... What a great interview. I want you to go back again. Check this out on demand. You can search Driven Entrepreneur. If you don't already have it, you should be getting it. Subscribe. You'll get it to your phone, your tablet, whatever. Every Friday, uh, 1 a.m. or midnight, it's going to get a new episode every single time. You won't miss anything if you subscribe. And you can go back and listen again. I would put it on half speed even because there was so much good 
uh, lessons and learning along the way with David. So thanks again for listening. Uh, get out there this weekend and crush it. And I'll be back with you next week with another Driven Entrepreneur. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.